Despite this face, I am actually very pleased to uh, be chatting with you this morning because I get to take you through the, the journey that I've been on where I've been uh, wrestling with the passage that we're going through and, and challenged by it as well. Um, so I've been doing this over the, the last few weeks and I, uh, I hope to bring what I believe to be a faithful presentation of this passage, but also something that's going to uh, have uh, practical applications for us as well. So with that in mind, I think it would be pretty good if I prayed now. So yeah, Father God, thank you that you are almighty and enthroned on high, but I thank you, Lord, that you want to meet with us, you want to transform us, and you've given us your living and authoritative word so that we can be transformed. Lord, I pray that uh, this morning yeah, you'll just elevate yourself in our hearts and let us be transformed once more as we gaze upon your glory. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So this journey has taken me through some various things, and you can track your progress against here. So you're going to have one take-home message, you're going to have two things that I really liked about this passage, and you're going to have two things that quite frankly scared me about this passage. So if you're going to get ready, if you've got your Bibles with you, we're in Mark chapter 12, and you can check that I'm not lying. Now, a bit of background, Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry on earth. Uh, he's performed a whole host of miracles. He's gathered a huge following, and he's made his triumphant entrance into Jerusalem, or as triumphant as he can on the back of a donkey. But it's, it's a triumphant entry into Jerusalem with lots of hailing and cheering from the crowd. He has stamped his authority by challenging the scribes and the chief priests, pointing out their hypocrisy and overturning the moneylender's table. He's worried the chief priests and scribes to the extent that they test him in public, not because they want to find out anything, but because they want to cause trouble between either Jesus and the authorities or Jesus and the people. But we know that Jesus answered these questions with truth and in such a way that the people are amazed. So having done that, we reach today's passage. So we're in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be reading from verse 38. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the front seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher punishment. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums and a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those giving to the temple treasury, for they gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she possessed, all she had to live on. Now, some of you might have a footnote at the bottom that says, in some versions that didn't make the New Testament, the widow was trailed by a man called Ken, reminding her to fill in a gift aid form. <laughs> but, um, it didn't make the canon, but it's, it's there. So we've got two clear sections of this passage, and we'll go through the first one. So this is a very strong warning against the scribes. I love Ken's red. <laughs> it's a very strong warning about the scribes. So let's find out who they were. Who were these scribes? They were an elite class of wealthy families. They were professional scholars in the interpretation of the Old Testament, and they were well-educated. They were able to copy and aid in the writing of various documents including wills and property conveyances. 
they had broad influence and they would associate with government officials, judges and lawyers. They were important people and not to be crossed. But Jesus lays bare the ugly truths and motives behind the scribes, their superficiality. He says they love the trappings of their office. They like the long robes of status, the special greetings in the marketplace, people perhaps fawning or showing deference to them, getting out of their way or wanting to speak to them because they have some form of political influence. They receive the best seats in the synagogues, like these guys here. You know they pay extra for those seats closer to that one down there. They also get the best seats at banquets, the VIP lounges of their day. And they devour widows' houses. They exploit their position of power and authority and the vulnerable position of society's weak in order to line their own pockets. And we're told to put on long prayers for show. They're not necessarily interested in hearing from the Lord or petitioning to the Lord on behalf of the people. Their prayers are for others to witness how pious they are, how much better, how much other they are that the spiritual leaders of the time were more focused on public opinion than on God's opinion is evident in the preceding sections of Mark when they interact with Jesus. We see when Jesus had turned over the money changers' tables and when the chief priests and scribes were debating how to answer Jesus' question and also when they realized that the parable of the tenants and the vineyard owner was about them. In each case, they wanted to act, to arrest and to have Jesus killed but they were fearful of the people. It would appear that a lifetime of culture focused on what people think about you and your status has led to that as your driver, as your success criteria. They were more interested in public opinion and maintaining their power and status than they were in God's opinion of what he had called his leaders to be. Of course, an overdeveloped sensitivity to public opinion is surely limited to the Middle Eastern first century, it would have nothing to do with our Instagram-fueled, gossip-loving, Facebook-checking, Twitter-reacting, celebrity-saturated culture of the 21st century. That comparison is actually worth heeding. It's good for us to reflect on this because I know in my reading of the Bible, when I come across the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the scribes, I can often paint them as these, as pantomime villains and cartoon baddies. But when we do that, we dehumanize them and make them so unlike us that we couldn't possibly compare ourselves to them. They would have actually had families, job pressures, associated emotions, thought processes that wouldn't have looked too dissimilar to ours. So when we look at any passage where Jesus warns us about chief priests or scribes, let's make sure that we heed any warnings that could actually benefit us. Let's not revel or grasp for authority. Jesus' warning is stark. God is vehemently against the proud. So, having condemned the scribes, we move to the second section of the passage. And this is what I kind of think of as being a a societal David and Goliath story. A poor widow, one of society's most vulnerable, compared to the privileged rich giving to the temple treasury. Now we come to the first thing that I love about the passage. So I'm going to tick that off now. God appreciates proportionality. This, from a man who is an unashamed geek, fills me with great joy. Jesus' disciples witnessed rich people making perhaps a great show of putting money into the temple treasury. But compared to what they can afford, this barely scratches the surface. In stark contrast to the witch, we see a poor widow step up and contribute her two lepta. 
We're told that Lepta were the, the smallest coinage available, and actually to Mark's readers in Rome, they didn't have a monetary equivalent, which is why some of your Bibles will say it's worth a quadrant or a penny. They had no idea what a Lepta was because it was so small, effectively. Jesus says, though, that this was all that she had to live on. What a contrast to the rich and to the scribes. This was everything she had. There's no welfare state to fall back on. She didn't have anything else. And I think it's really important for us to, to see that she, she had two lepta that make a penny. Two tiny coins is all she had to live on. You'd be forgiven for thinking as she looks at the amazing splendor of the temple and actually loads of rich people giving lots of money into the temple treasury that her two lepta wouldn't actually make any impact. Why, why even bother? It's even more incredible that she puts both in. That's, if she'd only just put, you'd be forgiven for thinking, well, why not just put one in? That's still half of what I have to live on being put in there. It was all that she had that she puts in the treasury. And now this presents me, and I believe probably most people, with a huge challenge today. And it brings me to the first point of what scares me about this passage. And it's this. God understands proportionality. <laughs> what am I giving in comparison to the widow? Or indeed the modern equivalents? I often struggle to give out of a surplus, let alone sacrificially. I can remember chatting to an older friend of mine when I was younger, and he was looking for an item, it was quite an important item, and he'd come to the conclusion that he'd lent it to someone. And he said a phrase that he would use quite often, and it was something like, consider it borrowed, consider it given. Basically, if you lend someone an item, then don't expect it back unless they give it back to you. Or, for example... If Matt Ashworth lent you a really good book about two years ago, he shouldn't expect it back (laughs) unless I give it back to him. And my friend lived by this principle. He gave generously to the church. He gave generously to ad hoc charities. And it would seem maddeningly that he would give to his friends if they borrowed something and didn't expect it back. And when he said, ah, consider it borrowed, consider it given, I nodded very sagely. This is a very wise thing to say. But in my head, I was thinking, no! (laughs) No, you crazy man! Consider it borrowed, consider it borrowed. That's the precise reason why I've said, here, I'll lend it to you. Goodness. But when I reflected upon it, my hypocrisy is there in plain sight. My heart wasn't prepared to give even out of a surplus, let alone sacrificially. It had a very strict set of rules of what was mine because I had earned it and what was the world's, and they can borrow it as long as they give it back. Whose heart did I have? The widows? The rich? Perhaps not even the rich. This widow gave everything she had. She held nothing back. So what are we to conclude? Is this a call to impoverish ourselves by giving? Is this a call to give to the point of destitution? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's what this passage is getting at. I'm by no means letting off myself off the hook here, as we'll come to later. But as we examine this passage, I think it's important to look at why a poor widow is the focus of this story. What well, could have been anyone. It could have been a, a poor man or a poor woman, but it wasn't. It was a poor widow. And why is that? Because widows are hugely important in the Bible due to what they represent. Widows were in a very precarious position. They'd lost their main source of financial security, their husband. 
They have no inheritance rights because they'd left their family and joined their husbands, and now the link to their husband's family had gone. And this is nothing to do with any of the emotional baggage that's going to come with this. Their best chance for financial security was either to remarry if they could, or if they had sons, was to get them to to come of age. They represent a vulnerable member of society. And throughout the Old Testament, the widows are placed among the orphans and the landless immigrant. Such was their position. They were in such a precarious position that God's heart for them was huge. The Israelites were called to protect the widow, and there were stark warnings about exploiting their vulnerability. If they were mistreated, then God said his wrath would burn against them. Woe to the oppressor. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice to you, a widow. Specific provision was made for them so that they could survive. Specific rules governing harvests and feasts, loans and the triennial tithe, all were there to ensure that widows were provided for. The prophets championed their cause. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, they had repeated calls to seek justice for the widow and not to oppress the widow. And then remarkably, when the Old Testament writers talk about the great rulers and all the spoils and tributes that are due a great ruler and a great kingdom, one of the measure of Israel's success, the measure of a great king, is actually how well society's most vulnerable are cared for. So I don't believe it's an accident that it's a poor widow that Jesus calls us to observe. Given how important it is for Israel to defend the most needy, or the leaders of Israel, to defend the most needy, we see a poor widow giving everything she has to the temple treasury. We certainly don't get the impression that the treasury is being used to provide for her, to love her, to protect her. And Jesus says as much, beware the scribes, for they devour the widow's houses. The lack of justice for widows, such as the one that we read about here, coupled with the self-seeking hypocritical heart of the leaders of the time, can only lead to one thing, and that's judgment. If we roll past the chapter denotation in chapter 13, we see that one of the disciples exclaims to the, to the Lord, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone here upon another that will not be thrown down. The temple is, this is a model representation, the temple is big and it is lavish, it is rich. But the fruit of that is not that society's most vulnerable are being looked after that they're being protected, God's justice upheld. And that can only lead to judgment. In AD 70, Jesus' prediction comes true, and the temple is raised to the ground by the Roman war machine. Not one stone stands on top of another. But at the time that that happens, there's a new temple, a new church already advancing, founded by the apostles, and we know from the book of Acts that there's a daily distribution provided for to the widows. Society's vulnerable is looked after. That was the advance of God's kingdom, and his justice and heart for the poor is lived out in the community of believers. So looking at this passage as a whole, we come to a quandary. Practically speaking, what must we do? How does this equate to Freedom Church today? And that comes to the, the second thing that scares me about the passage is there's no rules. As an unashamed geek, I want rules in place. Now, we know the basics here. We know that a widow is good and scribes are bad. And I'm going to say that I'm somewhere in, the, somewhere in the middle, slightly lower maybe. But Jesus doesn't say, see the widow here, she's put in all that she has, so therefore 12% of your salary would suffice. 
He doesn't even commend the widow. That's often implied. I think that's because it doesn't matter so much as what you give, but why you give. Now, in studying this passage, I've come across a full range of interpretations and arguments and debates about what the widow's motive is. Some would say that she is giving everything she has because she loves God so much that she is prepared to just trust in him and give both of her lepter. Others would argue that she's being coerced by those pantomime villain scribes that she's gonna, that they want even just those two lepter to add to their salary. That she's being made to give into the temple treasury out of guilt. And then finally I read one where he says this is actually a tragedy. She is giving blindly into a temple treasury that's ultimately set for destruction whilst the true object of devotion is just watching her a few yards away. And it's a tragedy. However, upon rereading the passage here and elsewhere, it appears, in Luke 21, her motive is never actually revealed. Any theory about the motive of why the widow gave both of her letter into the treasury is simply that. It's a theory. Now, I think it's important to recognize that the widow gave sacrificially. She gave everything she had, and she didn't hold anything back. And she exposed the hypocrisy of the rich and the scribes. But when all is said and done, her motive doesn't matter. Now, why is that? Because that motive is between her and God. What matters today is your motive and my motive as to why we give. How do you give of your money or your time? It's not what you give, but why you give that matters. And I think there's five reasons why we give. First one, guilt. We feel that we are compelled to give, to make amends. To make amends for the sin in our life, so that God will love us. Or to feel guilty about the fact that we have so much more money than the poor wretch on the TV charitable giving advertisement. Now, knowing and being thankful for your circumstances is not necessarily a bad thing, but guilty feelings shouldn't be the driving force of why we give. The second reason why we might give is what I've called the cosmic vending machine, which is effectively greed, but the cosmic vending machine sounds a lot better. (laughs) This could actually be sort of fairly limited to, or specific to Christians, but I think we're sometimes tempted to give because we believe that God will pay us back somehow. That if we give £100 now, he will miraculously provide £200 at another point. That if we give up our time in a godly pursuit, that somehow you'll be rewarded with even more free time at another point or some more money. And this is a type of prosperity teaching that I don't think stands up to what we read in scripture. We can't use God as a vending machine that if we put certain currency in, then we're going to get a treat out at the other side. There's plenty of examples in the Bible of people who end up on the wrong side of a cosmic vending machine if you think that time and money is going to be what God gives out at the other side. The great exchange of the Bible is that you put nothing in other than your trust in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and you get out eternal life justification, relationship with the Almighty God. That's the vend, not a quick injection of cash or opportunity. So the third reason why we might give is for show. Please don't get me wrong, I don't believe that if you give and other people witness it, that that somehow nullifies your gift. But it's very hard to maintain a a right motive when you're giving openly and other people witness it. You might start to get a bit of a buzz. You might start to take some of the credit for your amazingly generous and glorious donation. I once heard a sermon 
and it was give an example of or an exercise that you could do in order to um, train yourself to give generously or to uh, make you realize how much surplus you spent on yourself. And it was this. This was the exercise. If you buy double of any, you buy double of anything that you didn't need. Anything that you thought was a luxury item, you buy two of. For instance, if you're in a coffee shop, you'd buy yourself a coffee, and then whoever's in the queue behind you. If you went out for dinner, you'd buy your dinner. You'd also buy your friend's dinner as well. And it sounds good, doesn't it? And it's fun. And I tried it a while ago, and I dusted it off again this week. So, my bag of tricks here. I bought myself a pack of cookies. Does anyone want the second bag? Straight up there, Josh. Well done. I bought myself some of these. Anyone up for the uh, second bag? <laughs> Stay away. And then I also bought my wife, but I bought a second box. Some of these. Oh, you can guess the motive later, actually. Is. Does, anyone, does anyone want these? Anyone? Anyone at all? <laughs> so, so Neil's there. So, but when I was doing this exercise... I realize there's a huge fault in what you're doing, so I stopped doing it. The fault is this. Every time I gave someone something, that second item, someone thought I was awesome. Every time I did it, someone would kind of be pleased. I, I, I learned to kind of enjoy that surprise gratitude a little bit too much. What had once started as something that was a noble gesture to try and figure out how much surplus I spent on myself, and I'm sure there'll be a sermon on greed later, had actually become a pharisaical or scribe heart of public appreciation. So, what's the fourth? Conformity. That old master legalism. Let's define a standard. Some rules that can ensure that we are the same as everybody else. I think this is a trap that I can fall in quite often. I'm someone who used to stress very deeply about whether I tithe before or after tax. What's the standard? How do I conform to the correct way of giving? For heaven forbid I give too much (laughs) or too little. Conforming to a standard can be a strong driver for giving, but it's not the right one. So before we get to the fifth one, and no surprises there, what I believe to be the true reason for giving, I'm going to highlight something that I think is important for us as a church to know about. But before I do that, I think Ken and the elders should probably cover their ears. Yes, the church needs money to operate. And yes, missions to provide for the poor and to see the gospel spread don't pay for themselves. However, God does not need your money to fulfill his purposes. He managed quite fine without your regular giving in the past. And he conquered sin and death and made it possible to spend a life with him in eternity without worrying whether this chump was going to pay before or after tax. He advanced his church in spite of massive persecution without me wrangling how much I'm going to give in a monthly gift aid box. God will fulfill his purposes on earth because he's incomparably great, not because he has fine, uh, sound financial backing. Because it isn't what you give, but why you give that's important. So why give at all? Because it's a privilege. It is a privilege to give because it allows us to align our hearts with our Father in heaven, to express the feelings we have when we grasp his amazing grace for us. Even in the secular world, people give out of love. 
When you give a child a Christmas present, you don't, you don't feel guilty because you have more money than them. You don't give because you're expecting a bigger present back. If you do, you're going to be sorely disappointed when they present you with their cardboard with bits of foam sticking out. You don't give because they can see your lavish generosity. And you don't give because it's the done thing and you want to conform with everyone else and give them the right amount and not too much. You give because from a place of love, it's a privilege to dote on those that you love and adore. You're, you're closest to you. you. You love it. It's a privilege to be able to give. And with love as our motive, just like the widow in this morning's passage who refused to hold anything back, Jesus held nothing back. He gave up his everything so that you could know him. The blameless king of heaven dying an undignified, torturous death to pay for our transgressions. So the second thing I truly love about this passage is that whilst God does understand proportionality, he completely disregarded it when it came to me and my salvation. Nothing of what I truly deserve when I think about my rebellious heart wrangling about pre- or post-tax. <laughs> Nothing about what I deserve was meted out on me, for Jesus paid it all. There is nothing proportional about that. This outrageous generosity is emphasized again and again in the New Testament. So we do well to recognize that, dwell on it in our own prayer and thought life to respond to it out of a place of privilege and love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and Christ gave himself as a fragrant sacrifice, a ransom for all. When we think on that, how can we not give cheerfully like we're commanded to do in 2 Corinthians? So if you're going to take one take-home message away from today, it's this. Ask God to reveal his generosity to you in your life. It could be the simple things he's done that he's provided recently. Or if you're a Christian here today, it could be the fact that he's changed your eternal destiny forever. There's an inexhaustible list exemplifying his generosity towards us. Dwell on this this morning as we take communion together, as we symbolically remember God's outrageous exchange, his unbelievable generosity. The more time we spend thinking on these things and sharing stories about God's generosity with each other, the more we'll find our hearts transformed into the likeness of Christ. With the why we give sorted, the what we give will naturally increase. With the why we give sorted, hearts will give cheerfully, hearts will give money generously and take on jobs gladly. Hearts will seek out how to be generous with their time and are overflowing with their hospitality. Because it isn't what you give, but why you give that's important.